All right. Ready to go? Ready. Okay. Ethanol is promoted by industry as an environmentally friendly renewable fuel source. But in reality, it's actually fueling climate change. In this episode of Stories from the Floodplain, Dr. Tyler Lark from the University of Wisconsin-Madison discusses his recent report on ethanol's contribution to higher carbon emissions and how the nation's landscape has been changed to satisfy its false promise. PRN's Robert Hirschfeld conducts the interview. Our guest today is Dr. Tyler Lark. Tyler is a scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for Sustainability and the Global Environment, where he leads research on U.S. agricultural land use change and its impacts on our nation's land and water resources. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So we are in the middle of ag country, of row crop ag land. I am in Illinois, you're in Wisconsin. Um, growing corn is big business in the Midwest. A lot of the corn that we grow is used to make ethanol, a biofuel, which is mixed with gas gasoline to fuel cars. Ethanol was promised as a renewable fuel source with a lower carbon footprint than fossil fuels and one that would also benefit the American farmer. Tyler, you co-authored a study published last month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which challenged some of the claims about ethanol as a green climate friendly fuel. Can you give a short summary of your research and what you found about ethanol? Yeah, so with this study, we really set out to understand the role that corn ethanol development and that broader renewable fuel policy had in shaping the American landscape and its associated impact on things like greenhouse gas emissions and water quality. We found that perhaps unsurprisingly, when you increase demand for corn for use as a fuel, that stimulates crop prices. And then that in turn caused expansion of corn acres and ensuing consequences for things like carbon emissions, fertilizer use, and nutrient pollution. From your study, you found that I'll just cut to the chase. You found that ethanol isn't a particularly climate friendly fuel. In fact, it, it may be no better. It may even be worse than gasoline in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Which elements of the ethanol life cycle and production cycle are really driving ethanol as a uh, greenhouse gas emitter? Yeah, so it turns out this concept of land use change is, is really important and critical in that overall greenhouse gas balance of ethanol relative to other fuels. And so it's this idea that if you expand the, the area of land used for uh, cropland in general or, or corn in particular, that has associated you know, uh, consequences for the environment essentially. And so anytime you, for example, plow up something like a perennial grassland and put that into annually cultiv cultivated cropland, you're gonna release some additional carbon emissions, uh, some additional carbon from the soil out into the atmosphere Similarly, if you, if you switch your crop rotations on existing cropland, so switch from something like soybeans or wheat to corn, we know that corn is a, a relatively intensive crop. And so it takes extra fertilizer to, to help it grow. And when you apply that fertilizer, you get some nitrous oxide emissions um, from the nitrogen application, which is a, a potent greenhouse gas. And so you get additional emissions there. So it's really that component associated with land use is really all that we focused on in this study, but it, it's a key factor in that overall balance. And so that's what we want to take a, a closer look at in hindsight now that we've seen this policy in, uh, in enactment for about 15 years. 
And so raising corn takes fossil fuel inputs. You know, you have to use fossil fuels to produce corn, whether you're talking about fueling equipment or fossil fuels that go into fertilizers. And then like you're saying, you're also changing the landscape in a way that may be detrimental in terms of carbon emissions. What would or could be on the landscape rather than corn that might have a more climate, what would possibly be more climate friendly than corn? What What's the alternative to have on the landscape? Yeah. So both we see changes happening on our existing croplands. So if you think of, you know, in Wisconsin or Illinois, you might traditionally see like a corn soybean rotation or corn soybeans in a small grain, like uh, wheat or oats or alfalfa. Um, and increasingly when corn prices are really high due to something, any increase in demand, whether it be for corn ethanol or, or something else, you're gonna get more corn each year and, and less, less of those rotations and more corn. And so that's one of the big changes that we see is just more continuous corn monoculture uh, year after year rather than rotations with other crops. But then you also see changes on what they call this extensive margin. So more land coming oftentimes back into production that may have been set aside for other uses for a while. So things like uh, grassland pastures, so pasture, um, either whether it's for dairy cattle or, or grazing cattle or whatever it may be. So, you know, that grassland coming back into agricultural production or something like land enrolled in this conservation reserve program, which is a, a federal set aside where it's more marginal areas that used to be cropped historically, but had been set aside in this federal program used for, for conservation for periods of usually 10 to 15 years. We saw a lot of that land coming back into production during this time period. So one thing to clarify, sometimes I have heard detractors of ethanol say that the fossil fuel energy required to produce it is less than the energy content that you're getting out of it. But that's not what you're talking about here, right? Like this is this is a different this is a different piece. Yeah, exactly. So there's this huge uh, you know, set of calculations and analyses that go into that overall life cycle analysis or assessment of corn ethanol relative to other fuels. And it looks at things like the, the processing uh, energy that's required to, to make the different fuels and transportation emissions and tailpipe combustion emissions and, and all the different things that go into it and the inputs and the processing and the refining and transportation. We didn't look at any of that. We said, hey, there's been years and years of studies, uh, analyses conducted um, that are huge and, and encompass all those. But there's this one component that's really important, especially for, for biofuels, and it's the land use change component. And most analyses of the overall life cycles had looked at this, but it, a lot of them had to be done kind of projecting out in the future, making some assumptions and guesses of uh, what might happen you know, if we use a bunch of land for corn ethanol versus what might happen without it. And now we've had kind of the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say, well, what actually happened on our landscape and what do those changes mean for that small component of the overall uh, greenhouse gas intensity or, or energy balance of, of corn ethanol. So that seems like a key component. You're not making assumptions, you're not projecting, you're not forecasting, you're looking at what actually happened on the land. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, though, we actually still have to do some modeling and make some estimates and assumptions um, but the benefit is we only have to make about half as many as we used to. So if you're if it's if you jump back to 2005 or 2007 when they were first discussing this large policy 
called the renewable fuel standard that basically mandates that we blend some corn ethanol into our transportation fuel supply. Back then they were making projections and they were trying to estimate what would happen with this policy and increased corn ethanol demand and what would happen without the policy. And then that difference is essentially the, the environmental outcomes of, of what they're trying to predict. Now we can look back and say, we know what happened with this policy. It was enacted. We saw how our landscapes changed. We only have to estimate what we think might not have, or what would have happened in absence of that policy. And so it removes one of those sets of projections and assumptions and uncertainties. So we can you know, much better constrain these estimates of, of uh, environmental outcomes and, and get a better understanding of the overall environmental footprint of this fuel and policy. You mentioned the renewable fuel standard, which is key to understanding how ethanol works economically, the incentives for it in, in the United States. Basically, the um, federal government mandates that some percentage of ethanol be blended into gas for vehicle use. And it's there's kind of some back and forth about what that percentage should be, whether it should be more or less, but right now, it is a um, federal mandate to blend ethanol into gasoline. That's exactly right. So it was initially passed back in 2005 and then greatly expanded in 2007. And so it's this federal piece of, of legislation that Congress enacted and essentially set out these increasing volumes each year. So they said, we have these targets and these goals of trying to increase the amount of renewable fuels blended into our transportation fuel supply. And that kind of went up incrementally each year and to the point where we are today, which is essentially about 10% of our gasoline is ethanol, uh, most of which is coming from corn. Most of which is coming from corn. That's a, so I wanna ask you about this. While I have, I'm not a scientist, I've got you a scientist here. I want to ask about the, I, the concept of biofuel and ethanol more generally, because it, I, it seems like there's some confusion. Um, biofuel is a larger umbrella term for many different fuels that, that are derived from, you know, biological products. But even within ethanol, we're talking about potentially different products. And so can you just quickly break down like what is a biofuel and, and what are the differences in ethanol and what is corn ethanol in particular? Yeah, so you hit it exactly right. Biofuel is a much broader environmental term and probably encompasses any bio-based product that you can use as a fuel. Uh, but Corn ethanol often comes up in that discussion and in some cases is used synonymously because in the United States, corn ethanol is the predominant biofuel that we've had to date. And so this policy, for example, is just one example set out, uh, you know, annual levels of, of several different types of biofuels that were intended to be blended into the fuel supply. But corn ethanol is, is often referred to as a, a first generation biofuel. It was sort of one of the, the earliest ones we had and, and relatively easy to uh, produce and, and ramp up production. And so that's the one that really took off. It was sort of the lowest level of, uh, I don't know, lowest level of technology of all these biofuels. And it had the lowest thresholds and standards for uh, hopeful greenhouse gas emission reductions. So it was, it's what they call a conventional renewable fuel in this policy compared to something like a more advanced renewable fuel. And so it's this, it's this first generation, you make uh, ethanol alcohol from the, the corn starch, from the starch in the corn kernel, and you get back some, you know, some feed byproducts and other things, but it's a relatively straightforward process um, of using corn for ethanol. And so to date in the United States, I think about 
87% of all the biofuels we've produced under this large renewable fuel policy has come from, from corn ethanol. And it's really the, the predominant um, biofuel in use today. Other common ones though are, are things like um, biodiesel made from soybeans. Um, and there's a, a lot of other types of, of renewable fuels that can qualify under this federal policy. So um, renew, I think like, you know, there's renewable natural gas and other things that, that qualify under similar policies. And so a whole slate of, of things that could be called a renewable fuel or a biofuel, but corn ethanol really has dominated in the United States, at least. And in other, other countries, things like Brazil, they have a lot of uh, ethanol made from sugarcane. Um, and so it really can vary based on region and, and uh, resources that are available. So other biofuels might have very different profiles than corn ethanol in terms of energy efficiency and greenhouse gas gas emissions. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Um, and so even if you are perhaps revealing some of the downsides of corn ethanol, it's not necessarily a statement on what other biofuels, you know, the, the um, prospects for other biofuels. Right. Absolutely. So one of the hopes and, and whole goals of this research was to look back at our policy to date and at corn ethanol, which has been our predominant biofuel to date, and say, what are the lessons that we can learn from this initial kind of approach and technology that's been used, and hopefully apply some of those lessons to design and develop better biofuels moving forward. So one such technology that a lot of folks are researching and, and you know has promise for greater greenhouse gas mitigation benefits and, and greater overall benefits is um, cellulosic biofuels. So this is considered like a next generation biofuel where you make um, uh, the fuel off of the, basically the, the plant matter rather than just the corn kernel. You, you could use corn stalks as one, but a lot of research is going into using things like prairie grasses um, or other native grasses like switchgrass. And so could you use those types of feedstocks, those types of inputs that are much more uh, easier on the environment, right? Much more environmentally friendly. If you can have a perennial native grass species on the landscape and use that as a feedstock rather than intensively cultivated corn, that could have huge environmental benefits, you know, help improve water quality, provide uh, some better wildlife habitat and all kinds of benefits, and then still harvest that and perhaps turn that into a fuel or a different type of bioproduct that could have a lot of benefits and it could go a long ways in improving the environmental footprint of um, ethanol right now or, or other bio-based products. And so that's what, where a lot of the research is going. And I think what a lot of the hope was with this initial policy and, and push for getting renewable fuels into our transportation supply. Are there other externalities of ethanol? Are there other, you know, consequences of growing ethanol um, of devoting, it's like it's like a third or a fourth of the corn grown in in the U.S. goes to ethanol. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So I think it's about a third initially, maybe goes to like an ethanol refinery, but then you recover a lot of that kind of mass and, and things as a high high quality animal feed, such that I think on net it's about a quarter of the corn uh, produced is kind of used for ethanol as fuel. Got it. So that's that's a large percentage of yeah. It's a ton. Um, and a huge amount of area. If we have, you know, 80 to 90 million acres of corn in any given year, you know, we're talking about over 20 million acres across the entire country just devoted to, to growing corn for fuel. Well, can 20 million acres, do you have like a geographic sense, like compare that to a, a you know, a state, do you know? 
Ooh, that's a good question. It's huge. I don't know. It's bigger than some states. It's bigger than your like uh, small East Coast states, right? I, I should have a stat like that ready offhand, um, but it's, it's. I'll look it up. I'll look it yeah. up, and we'll, we'll insert a little editorial. You know, this can be a little point, yeah. listeners. You can uh, Google right now if you're on your phone and be like, "What is the size of 20 million acres?" And uh, you can get back to us. <laughs> okay, so that's that's a lot. That's a lot of corn. And in addition to the greenhouse gas element, greenhouse emissions, you know, are there other consequences of growing that much corn? Are there other externalities, um, you know, pollution? What are there other consequences of land use change? Um, and are those measured or not? Yeah. So, I mean, farmers are making great progress in their, their cultivation of corn. It's, a, I mean, one of the key benefits and why it's so popular is it's really, really productive. And so that's great. So we're getting a lot of, you know, a lot of bushels out of it, a lot of bang for our buck when, when we grow corn uh, and also making good strides in conservation of trying to reduce the amount of tillage uh, on the landscape that's associated with it and reduce nutrient inputs. But the, the fact of the matter kind of still stands that corn is just this incredibly intensive crop. And so when you, you know, have to plow up and cultivate the landscape to plant corn, uh, a lot of that soil is exposed. So you get things like increased soil erosion relative to say, if that was a, a grass pasture or in, enrolled in this conservation reserve program. So you get more soil erosion, um, typically more runoff uh, and with the added um, fertilizer that needs to be applied to corn, you have both nitrogen and, and phosphorus as, as key nutrient pollutants that often leach out or uh, run off and, and end up in the environment. And so it can contribute uh, quite a bit to things like nitrate contamination of uh, groundwater and drinking water and phosphorus uh, runoff ending up into surface waterways. And, and these things, you know, we know lead to other consequences uh, and, you know, are really a detriment to water quality. So we get things like harmful algal blooms or hypoxic areas or these, these dead zones. So if you've heard of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, one of the major contributors to that is all this nitrogen fertilizer used throughout the Corn Belt and throughout the Midwest that then flows through the Mississippi River Basin uh, and out into the Gulf of Mexico, contributing to this large hypoxic area. I was interested to read the pushback from ethanol boosters about the study. Um, would you mind if I brought up a couple of these critiques and had you respond to them? Sure. Yeah, and um, we even heard about because we were we were tweeting about it. Um, we were sharing it on sharing the study on on social media, and uh, we heard immediately from some people who were asking us about this. Yeah, ethanol, it, you know, it brings in a lot of money, right? You've got a federal, you've got a planned economy here with ethanol, and so it, it's bringing in money to certain people. It's going to have staunch defenders. Some of the criticism, some of the criticism of your study from ethanol champions that I read. One charge was that you cherry picked your data. This was a common theme I saw in particular about the total amount of corn acreage. So your, if your conclusions rely on how much the ethanol mandate drove increased corn planting, then looking at that land use change, like you said, like that, that's key. And so in your study, you factored in land use changes in, in order to understand the overall climate impact you looked at corn acreage from 2008 to 2016 and found an increase in those years. Now, the most recent version of the renewable fuel standard kicked in 2007, right? So 
you looked at 2008, 2016, critics were saying that corn was actually, acreage was higher in 2007 and down by 2017. So basically what they're saying is if you'd picked a different date range, you'd have different results. You you chose a date range that would give you a negative result for ethanol. What, what do you say to that? Yeah. Oh, well, there's a lot of different things built into that. Um, <laughs> but for one, uh, if you were to choose a broader date range, you would just have a larger impact. So there was more <laughs> land conversion going on if you start earlier. You know, some farmers probably converted land to crop production leading up to that or after 2016. So beyond our study window. The really the key factor here, which I think is missed, and, and understandably so, I think these uh, ethanol interest groups have to kind of put out a statement before they maybe even have a chance to read the, the full study and understand it. But what's important to consider is what would have happened in absence of corn ethanol development. And so the language around that is important. So regardless of whether corn area or total cropland acreage increased or decreased or stayed the same across a given period, we know that without the renewable fuel standard and without this corn ethanol development, total acreage would have been lower than what was observed, right? So corn area could have been going down, but we know that without this huge demand for an additional 15 billion gallons of ethanol, it would have gone down even more. And so, in fact, it really doesn't matter which dates you pick or, or what your metric is or if a given uh, estimate or, or way to measure says that corn area actually went down, like how can ethanol be contributing? Well, it, it might have gone down even more without this policy. And so that's kind of the key thing. And so our, our study actually, the, the details is that we say, you know, in a given, any given year, corn area would have been about 7 million acres lower than it was. Uh, and that difference would have been, you know, planted to other crops. Things like soybeans and wheat would have been higher than what they were. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, that was my reaction when I saw that. I was thinking, well, you're driving demand. You're artificially driving demand and incentivizing it to pretend that more corn's not going to be planted seems to be denying the reality of a market. The question is not so much what happened over an eight-year period, but what is the alternative in this year, right? Like, what's the alternative corn production in, in this given year, which it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I think you're totally right in that, in that at the same time, a lot of folks are championing this policy as being a success. It, it, it you know, Congress made this call and said, hey, we want to increase the amount of renewable fuels that we have in our transportation fuel supply. And farmers heard that and responded appropriately. You know, they have this increased demand for corn ethanol. They're gonna plant more corn on their existing cropland, but they're also gonna pull some more land uh, into production just because of overall higher prices. And it's, you know, I, I think it's not surprising what we saw happen on the landscape. And it's also in, in some senses what people anticipated and in the sense wanted or, or what this policy stipulates. They said, hey, we want more corn ethanol go out and get it. And, and that's what we got. Right. Yeah. It seems like speaking out of both sides of the mouth to say like the policy worked, we're planting corn, we're planting more corn, <laughs> we're getting more ethanol into the fuel supply, but we're also not doing that. I don't know. I, that didn't, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I could see how it could be a misleading little red herring in terms of, of calling into question the results. Um, a similar, I, I'm, I'm going to guess this is similar, but another one that I saw was about corn prices. Um, they spiked and it looks like they spiked in 2013 and again in 2021. 
topping seven and six dollars per bushel respectively in between those years in between 2013 and 2021 they were in a fairly narrow range often between about three and four dollars per bushel um so is that a, you know when you say like it, it drives prices it incentivizes it again we're just talking about like well what's the alternative in a given year it's floating prices higher than it would in 2015 if we did not have the mandate is that Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we estimated that, you know, and we worked with several different economists in this. This was a broad, this effort was a, a broad effort, uh, a multidisciplinary team from many, you know, researchers from many institutions and the economists on our team, you know, took a really close look at this. And what their estimates show is that essentially corn prices were about 30% higher with this policy than they would have been without it. And so corn prices still would have, you know, jumped up and then gone down and, and fluctuated all around. Um, but this increased demand for this additional corn product just elevated them a little bit more than they otherwise would have been. Right. Clearly, there are other market factors at play, but this is a non-insignificant one. This is a significant. This is a significant factor in some. Yeah. Thirty percent. Okay. okay. Yeah. A couple more pieces on this because um, I feel like it's very actually it's very enlightening to kind of get the counter get the counter to the counter. Part of the pitch from the ethanol lobby is that we're getting more and more yield out of the same number of acres. I saw that they were saying that, you know, we've basically been consistent with corn acreage for almost a century. Um, but if you look at what, if you just look at the number of bushels you got out of a single acre of planted corn, a corn farmer may be producing six or seven times as much corn out of that single acre as they did in the 1920s, for example. You know, I'm, I'm curious about a couple things here. One, how did that come about <laughs> that we're producing that much more corn? And does that have any play with what you're talking about at all? Yeah, well, uh, there's probably a lot of other people who know more how that came about. But essentially, we've had a lot of investment in corn and, and agronomic research over these years, right? And so and farmers have become more efficient. They get more bushels for fewer inputs. And, you know, corn production just continues to, to make advances. And so that's absolutely correct, right? We're getting more bushels per acre. But uh, the, the fact kind of still remains that that's fantastic. And in fact, if that was the only thing going on, then we would be able to return a bunch of land that was in corn production to conservation or to um, pasture production or something else, right? So we were getting that much more, those many more bushels per acre. We don't need as much land. And so if we didn't have this corn ethanol development, then there that would open up a whole bunch of that existing corn land for other uses. And, and that's really that alternative um, scenario that, that you have to compare to when you're looking at the effects of this policy in, in corn ethanol. Yeah, got it. Okay, last one on this front. Um, I, I was reading your paper and doing some research for this, you know, um, I came across the term carbon intensity. Carbon intensity is what you're looking at, right, for this study. What is the carbon intensity of corn ethanol? Carbon intensity is the measure of the greenhouse emissions associated with producing and burning a transportation fuel. So other previous studies have found ethanol to be more climate friendly, to have fewer greenhouse emissions. And I think you touched on this earlier, but um, what did those studies not take into account? It seems like I heard, you know, whether that's EPA or California Air Resources Board or the United Nations, like 
Like it's like that. Those were some of the entities being bandied about as having ah, we labeled ethanol a, a clean fuel. What did what has been missed that you have taken into account? Yeah, so a lot of these previous estimates, uh, it really comes down to the land use change component. And that's what we sort of revised here and, and could look back on now in hindsight to, to understand what actually happened. So for example, the EPA made some projections back when this policy first came out and just estimate a really, really small amount of land use change in the United States. And probably rightfully so, like there hadn't been a whole lot of cropland expansion happening for the last three decades. Um, so nobody probably anticipated or expected it. But what we saw is once this policy got enacted and had this increased demand for corn for use as fuel, there was a, a large response. Farmers responded and we, we got more corn on the landscape. And so I think, you know, a lot of those projections that were initially made are, were really hard, but they did the best they could. And to the extent that we can look back now and, and revise it, that's sort of what we tried to do here. If you're enjoying this episode, consider leaving a review on whatever platform you use. And donate to Prairie Rivers Network so we can keep bringing you important conversations with experts and leaders in this field. Thanks for listening, and here's the rest. Why did you want to do this research? You know, we've been studying agricultural land use in the United States for about the last decade. And over this time period, really saw this, this large resurgence in cropland expansion or, or in conversion of grasslands and other natural or semi-natural areas into the crop production. And we'd always get asked this question of, oh, is, is corn ethanol contributing to this? And if so, what, you know, what proportion is it um, leading you know, or causing this? And we never had an answer and, and no one else really had a good answer either. It's a really hard question. You know, what, is, what are driving these landscape changes? And so about five years ago, we just said, okay, if we want to answer this question, what would we have to do to do that? And went out and sort of assembled this, this team of economists and crop modelers and environmental scientists that we needed to, to answer this and figure out what uh, contribution corn ethanol development has had on these large scale landscape changes that we've been seeing. I read in your bio that you grew up on a small farm. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. How had how did that inform your path to where where you got today and what you're doing now? I basically got to see on a daily basis that intersection of conservation and and agricultural production and everything that goes with it. And so it's you know that agricultural background is still a large piece of who I am. And at the same time, I you know also value the environment and recreating in it and everything it provides to humans and the wildlife and everyone else who depends on the environment. And so agriculture has such a large influence on our environment and land use, you know, one of these predominant drivers of our, our global environment today. So I think this intersection of land use and agriculture and the environment is a really interesting but important place to, to study and put our effort and emphasis because any you know, positive changes we can have there, I think can have really large positive outcomes for a large amount of people. When I sometimes talk to someone who's not as conversant with the issues that we face in Illinois, they'll ask me, you know, what are the major things to be worried about in terms of water pollution? And I'm like, ag, ag, and ag. But, you know, something that is difficult is that um, we don't want to be in the business of demonizing food production. You know, there's a real quandary here in terms of agriculture is driving a lot of water pollution. 
other pollutants as well. And it is driving land use change. But we also clearly need to produce food for people here at home abroad. Um, it's difficult to kind of navigate that dynamic, I think, sometimes as a as an advocacy organization, you know, for you, what you're doing um, and maybe kind of growing up on a farm helps with that. But how do you do you how do you think about that? I mean, do you are you concerned that your research is, you know, casting farmers in a bad light? How do you kind of manage the work that you're doing with with, you know, the recognizing that we we've, we need to be producing healthy food? Yeah, I think we struggle with a lot of the same uh, issues that you just mentioned, you know, uh, as scientists, we're just trying to come in and provide some extra data points and, and better understanding of the systems so that hopefully everyone involved and all the stakeholders can use that information and, and drive, you know, improvements and better decisions moving forwards. But it's absolutely challenge, right? Agriculture is crucial. It, it's vital to us as humanity and society and provides all these you know, terrific goods and services, but there are also a lot of environmental externalities and costs that come with it. And so it's trying to balance those uh, and making good decisions uh, to the best that we can to, to try to help reduce the environmental, uh, the negative environmental impacts and try to maximize the benefits. And I think our, I think our farmers are, you know, they're often the best stewards of our land, right? They rely on land for their livelihoods. And so in some cases, um, in this case, perhaps even, you know, you can, in some spots, look at maybe the policy rather than the, the individual actors or the, the producers, right? And so that's why we take a, a look at this policy to say, how is it set up? You know, what does it incentivize? And, and what are some of the spots where it worked really well? And where are the, some of the spots where there may have been some, some failures in it that, that led to things and outcomes that we don't necessarily want? And so I think with our research in particular, that's been a, a really effective way is to say, you know, how, what effect have these policies made and are there things that we can learn from them moving forward that can help help stimulate, you know, our, our farmers and their conservation um, while also providing really good benefits to society and, you know, providing environmental outcomes that I think everyone wants. Why is this policy in place? Well, I think I've heard it explained as having three large goals kind of from its outset. So one was to increase in the, uh, energy independence, right? So to reduce reliance on, on foreign oil, especially when it was first enacted back in 2007 was when it was really expanded. A second is to help stimulate the rural economies and, and support uh, farmers and their production. And a third is to have some environmental benefits and then hopefully climate benefits. And I, I think in hindsight, a lot of folks would say it was really successful at two of those, at the energy independence. Uh, you know, we, we've got now 10% of our gasoline and transportation fuel is essentially homegrown uh, using corn ethanol. And it seems like it's also helped uh, stimulate the rural economies by increasing crop prices. Uh, but we're just seeing now in hindsight, it probably doesn't have all the environmental uh, benefits that we had hoped initially, in, in particular in relation to the climate change mitigation, you know, it may be no better than, than the gasoline that it's replacing. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about those first two as well, um, the first two goals. So, and in particular with what's going on with Ukraine and Russia right now, we're seeing a lot of calls to get energy independent really quick. Do you think it's fair to say that ethanol is providing us some amount of energy independence? Are we actually powering the United States with ethanol? 
to what you know to what degree we are and i've seen obviously there are calls right now to drill frack whatever let's do it all so that we're not you know relying on russian fossil fuels and i've seen calls to um, increase the ethanol mandate the blending limit as part of this push will, will there be significant you know would there be significant energy independence benefit from doubling down on ethanol yeah i would say that really that is a really good question and but falls way outside of my realm okay. of expertise but you know i think a lot of economists are looking into this and, and folks look at the bigger picture and, and maybe you know have weighed in I do know I've seen uh, there is um, a new little paper that just came up by a researcher, uh, Jason Hill at the University of Minnesota, who just you know calculates that essentially the amount of, of benefit that we get from corn ethanol production um, and blending that into our transportation fuel could could just as easily be attained by you know improving the vehicle fuel economy by like something like two miles per gallon or something like that would do the same as all the corn ethanol that we produce on these 20 million acres across the country. And so I, I know it's, I've, I've heard, you know, essentially that we, we put a lot of energy into corn ethanol production, but when you look at it at the end of the day, it's just 10% of our, our transportation fuel. And, you know, how much do we actually get from that? I'm not sure. As a scientist, you may be <clears throat> loath to talk about the politics of it, but is there a partisan divide on ethanol? Is it who is opposed to ethanol? Yeah, I think this issue is a from what I've seen from the outside on you know coming out just from the science side, it seems to be different than most political divides. You know, it's not left or right. It's it's oftentimes uh, urban versus rural areas, or um, you know, based on the constituency of different congressional members. And so, it, in some cases, there's weird coalitions and also weird. Um, folks invested on, on both sides and because it's kind of in between big egg and big oil and uh, it's sort of this battle of, of those two interest groups. It's um, it could be a, a, a odd, an odd uh, policy and odd discussions going on. Um, in some cases, it's refreshing that it's not just left versus right, conservative versus liberal and, and things like that, but it's also these, you know, there can be, some, there's a really big financial interest involved. And so, um, yeah, just observing it is, is sometimes interesting. Yeah, there was a note. That was a trick question. There's, <laughs> I've not seen any um, actual political pushback. In fact, I think um, as of yesterday, Senator Durbin and Senator Duckworth in Illinois were calling to increase the blending limit. If you were looking just at the ethanol issue and from that tried to extrapolate out what are our goals what the goals are of our agricultural policy, what would you say? Outside my realm as a scientist, but just as a, as a public and as a layperson, what, from what I'd see is, you know, if we can shift some of our policies from just uh, incentivizing production to incentivizing conservation and like the outcomes that we wanna see with production, right? If we want, we want to produce a ton of food, but we also wanna produce clean water and habitat and uh, climate mitigation benefits. And so if we can set up policies like that, or if policymakers can set up policies like that, if the public can support them, that seems like it could go a long way. So I think that's maybe one sort of broader takeaway of, 
of where should policies go moving forward, whether it be uh, an energy or a fuel policy or just a, an agricultural policy or, or broader ones? Let's just say for you personally, um, knowing what you know, what you've learned as a researcher, your experience growing up on a farm, living in the Midwest, you know, if you were given a magic wand and all the purse strings and, you know, you get to envision what the Midwestern landscape looks like, you know, what would it look like to you? Well, that's a fun thought experiment. <laughs> I, I envision uh, just totally personally, uh, you know, probably something very similar to what a lot of the people listening to this podcast are thinking of, you know, we would we would still grow corn on the most productive and, and really fertile land across the Midwest. That is great. But we would also have things like large uh, riparian buffers, you know, and, and prairie strips planted throughout this corn and probably not as much corn as, you know, other crops rotated in with it as well. So still really productive, but a highly, you know, economically uh, productive uh, industry in, in our agricultural landscapes, but also one that is incredibly fruitful for uh, conservation and wildlife and recreation and clean water and, and all these things. So having, you know, more perenniality on the landscape would be, I think, a really neat thing to see. Uh, so more grasslands and, and perennial crops and, and greater diversity in our, in our cropping systems. I know you're not an economist, but can that system make economic sense? I think so. Or, you know, there's there's been studies and, and researches, research and proposals suggesting that, you know, if you incentivize conservation the way we incentivize production right now, that you can, you know, do a lot of good. And uh, we, we pour a lot of public funds, I think, into the, the, the crop insurance program, for example, is one to kind of subsidize that risk. And there's provisions in there. There's this thing called sod saver, which essentially says, um, you know, it tries to pre uh, reduce the incentives for plowing up something like a native prairie to plant um, a cultivated crop. And I think pretty much everyone would agree, like, that's a great provision. We shouldn't be plowing up like some of our best remaining native prairies to, to plant crops. They're often in spots that aren't that great to plant crops anyways. So yes, let's not like subsidize that production and that risk. Let's um, put that funding elsewhere. And so that provision, that sad saver would save like millions of dollars in crop insurance that gets paid out each year. And you could return that same amount of, you know, financial investment right back to farmers and landowners in the landscape, right? And just instead of paying to produce there or subsidize the risk associated with production, uh, support the conservation in the first place, right? Help farmers keep that land that is, you know, probably shouldn't be in production or is really hard to produce and is really, uh, you know, it's probably a really environmentally sensitive piece of land, keep that in conservation and, um, you know, reward them for the, the stewardship of that and all the ecosystem goods and services that it provides in its more natural state. I can hear a few of our members screaming that we shouldn't pay people not to do something problematic, but Maybe this is the reality we're in. Oh um, no, I take it back. I take back whatever I just said. See, that's what happens when we lead off, we lead a and we get into a policy discussion. That's why I'll stick to the science. We have found it very difficult to make progress on agricultural issues. I have my 
opinions about why that is, but, um, you know, any thoughts as a scientist, like, do you think this is a particularly difficult area to change how business is done? I mean, let's, let's, I, I want to not overlay it with, with like normatives, like you, we should, we got to do this. We should or shouldn't do this, but just like, you know, just changing the status quo. Do you think this is, I wonder if you could, if you might see this as a, as a particularly difficult area. Yeah, I think you said it well, you know, it's changing is hard. It's really challenging. And especially if it's the way that things have always been happening, uh, which isn't to say there's resistance within this industry. I think it's, there's lots of there, you know, producers are like eager to improve their practices and are asking and, and pulling for greater conservation efforts and support and funding to help them do it and, and you know people to appreciate the the strides that they're making. And it's just, it's a huge, you know, it's a it's a really big issue. It's a really big industry. It's a really big important concept. So I think that change just takes time and effort from everyone you know it's a collaborative effort it's it's the producers on the ground who are making change and making progress and making strides it's the, the researchers who are trying to provide the the better strategies and practices to help support them and enable that it's the folks like uh prairie rivers network you know advocating and, and helping get those policies and those practices put into place and it, it's just just sort of all of us coming together collectively and collaboratively to saying, hey, we all want the same things. We all want clean water. We all want uh, clean air and to, to mitigate climate change and to, and to also have great production that supports supports us as humanity and supports society and supports our individual livelihoods. And so it's a huge system. It's, there's always going to be growing pains and, and challenges to uh, along the way but i think it's sort of that's why it's so interesting and important that we all work on it and keep striving to to make progress together towards some of those goals those common shared outcomes that we want that's a very positive answer cynically though i i have to come back and say do we all want clean water i would hope so i think we all want clean water yeah i can't think of anybody who doesn't uh if some, you know, maybe there's interest groups that don't want clean water or, or, you know, their particular interests run counter to it, but if they could get both whatever they wanted and clean water, heck yeah, who wouldn't want that? If they can get both, they won't reject the clean water, but they've got to have the other piece in place is how it seems. It seems like there's an uneasy relationship between the oil industry and ethanol. Um, obviously, a lot of fossil fuels go into growing corn, <laughs> but there's also kind of a competitive element here. That's kind of played out, I think, in the last couple of years where there's been push and pull over blending requirements and some oil refiners want um, have lobbied for either lower blending requirements or exemptions. I guess it's expensive for them and it raises their cost and they just don't want to do it. Can you speak at all to the interplay between the fossil fuel industry and the ethanol industry? Do you have any knowledge of that? Not really. No, yeah. I can speculate as good as anyone. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is like, as you put this study out, you know, about ethanol being problematic, are you owned by big oil, you know? No, yeah. <laughs> I think it's been interesting to come in as a third party, you know, like uh, ethanol has got their interest and oil has an interest. I don't know whether it's against or parallel or yeah, tangential Some... or whatever it may be. And then 
you know, we're coming out from the environmental side of like, hey, we want to make sure whatever we're using our transportation fuels uh, has the best environmental footprint and best outcomes possible. Uh, so sometimes we'll see like other researchers getting tugged or pulled in different ways or something, or, or not really the researchers, but just those those two industries clashing or or collaborating in some senses, who knows? But we definitely try to stay out of that and uh, yeah, never like, we've never gotten funding from corn people from corn growers or the ethanol industry and have never gotten funding from oil producers or the refining industry. Uh, try to just, you know, stick with coming in and say, hey, we want to do the best we can with our transportation fuels. How do we how do we do that? Uh, or at least, you know, provide the science to say, well, if folks who are smarter than us can make a decision of, of how to how we should design our policies, we can help give some of the data to help inform those decisions, hopefully. Got it. So you're not trying to break the back of the ethanol industry to benefit big oil? Definitely not. In fact, if anything, it's like counter to that. And that would maybe be one, that would be, a, I would think, a, a bad, a, a sad takeaway. I hope people don't take away from our study is that we should have more oil and more gasoline. If, if anything, it's the opposite. It really um, adds emphasis to the urgency of finding true solutions to climate change and, and other challenges like, you know, global biodiversity loss, you know, Corn ethanol is probably turning out to be not the the solution that we thought it would be. You know, it doesn't have as, as large as climate climate benefits as expected, and, and comes with all these other uh, environmental externalities. And that just adds further urgency to finding better alternatives. You know, next generation biofuels that can help reduce our reliance on oil and gasoline, while also having you know benefits for the environment and water quality and greater climate mitigation um, potential. And so. Really, it just kind of tells us like we need to double down, right? We need to uh, we need to work on climate change, and we need to do it in ways that are really uh, meaningful. So not just striving for fuels that have uh, you know five or ten or twenty percent reduction in greenhouse gases, but ones that reduce them by fifty percent or you know one hundred percent relative to gasoline, and uh, setting our targets a little bit higher and. Uh, trying to make real tangible progress because yeah the alternative you know sticking with status quo is is not a solution um but also we we the, uh, some of the first generation solutions that we were hoping might help get us there probably aren't doing the trick or going to get us where we really need to go so a question i hope you won't be offended by <laughs> does the kind of scientific research that you're doing matter you know are, are people going to listen i feel like we are in a constant state of ideological warfare in this country with like the various camps arrayed against each other and you know everyone's got their biases and you marshal the facts that are convenient and talk about how you've cherry picked your data <laughs> if it's inconvenient <laughs> right like Okay, can you make me a case? You know, I like I want to feel some hope here. Make me a case for the importance of scientific research as we go about setting our policy agenda in this country. You know, what uh, what what do you think this can do? What do you, what impact do you think this can have? Yeah, I think I'm hopeful. I think uh, there is obviously a huge need for for good science in this and in so many fields, and so uh, certainly we have to try. And so we we do the research and we put it out there. Um, you know, in some case, then it's outside of our hands and, and where it goes is, is a broader question and has broader implications. But on this topic, it, it really feels like 
there is interest and, and desire to know how these policies are impacting our landscapes and, and what the outcomes are. And, and so, you know, everywhere that we share this research, everyone is really receptive, wants to know more, wants to understand what are driving these changes, uh, what are the outcomes and, and how could we improve upon these policies and, and just these technologies moving forward. So I'm optimistic. I think there's opportunity and I think there's re receptiveness, uh, you know, across from the industry to government to other you know folks in the in the and stakeholders in this world, and uh, yeah, I think I think we, there's hope for it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hope. Good. Well, you know, we're trying to champion science here at this organization, so I hope that's the case. <laughs> Do you know where we are right now in terms of the renewable fuel standard and this policy? And um, it's 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 set to terminate actually, right? This year, 2022. So can you just say something about where that is and where it might go? Yeah, so we're really at a, a pivotal moment for this renewable fuel standard or, or the policy that governs our renewable fuels and our transportation supply in the US. And so the policy, which was enacted back in 2007 in its current form, stipulates biofuel volumes and types annually through the year 2022, so up to this year. And what happens next uh, is essentially up to the EPA. And so this year they're doing large environmental reviews and, and getting collecting a bunch of um, stakeholder input and, and external feedback and trying to understand uh, this issue and decide what this policy should look like moving forward. But it's essentially a, a decision point where the decisions made this year for this policy will probably help define what uh, our renewable fuel portfolio and what our landscapes look like moving forward into the foreseeable future. And so it's a, a chance to take a step back, kind of look at uh, where we've come from and, and what the outcomes of that have been and, and where we as a society want to go moving forwards. Great. So now is the moment for an organization like ours, Prairie Rivers Network, to marshal our audience that is listening to this and may want to take action to influence our policy agenda and what the landscape in Illinois and across the Midwest looks like. Do we want to have more row crop agriculture? Do we want to do something different? Do we want to keep nutrient pollution out of our waterways? Do we want to have habit, wildlife habitat corridors along our rivers? Do we want to continue to fuel the dead zone in the Gulf and to have nitrate pollution in shallow drinking water wells? Um, all of this is potentially on the table. I'm speaking for myself, not for you. So, um, you know, we will, I think, uh, be in touch with our membership and our audience to discuss how they can take action on these issues going forward in what's an important year for the Midwest. Um, what are you doing next? Well, I think we'll keep looking at this, you know, broad agricultural land use across the U.S. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different pieces to it. Hopefully, we won't have to look into corn ethanol uh, a whole bunch more, and this can kind of uh, be the, the last of that um, that we need to. But looking what opportunities exist for the future, so for next generation biofuels, um, you know, what are the lessons that we've learned from from corn ethanol, and where how can we do better with those and where could they go on the landscape and what is the opportunity and how can we have co-benefits for the environment and the economy and production? So that's one kind of area of focus where we're part of this um, 
Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center, whose kind of mission is to develop uh, more sustainable biofuels and bioproducts. And so um, trying to in inform that process to, to develop some ones that have all these great potential benefits is, is one kind of positive future direction where we're going and, and just looking at these issues more broadly. Some of our research, we've, we've started looking at impacts of things like urbanization. So, you know, we also lose a whole bunch of cropland to, to urban sprawl and development every year. And so, you know, that sure increased demand for corn ethanol is a, is a driver of land use change, but so, so is uh, urban expansion and, and sprawl. And right. And we lose a lot of really good productive farmland uh, to that every year. So I think that's uh, an area of interest moving forwards and we'll just keep looking at this broader system see how it's going and see, you know, look for opportunities of where continued research and science can help, you know, inform um, that decision-making and the practices going forward to hopefully have improved environmental outcomes. Yeah, we, so I think we went pretty deep into ethanol, which I hope our listeners appreciate. Um, I think that's the value of doing this kind of thing, this podcast here, uh, you know, not that I don't get value out of Twitter and, and, short thoughts, but, you know, sometimes it's nice to be able to dig into the details and understand the nuance um, and not have all of the context be laundered out of the conversation. So I hope value was achieved there. Um, yeah, again, so Tyler, really appreciate your time, appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, I I want to be optimistic. I really do hope it is valuable. I hope there are people in DC that are going to listen um, to your findings. So again, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on our podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having. Me. It was a fun conversation, and uh, glad we could you know share some more insights about this topic and hopefully spur some interest for everyone as well. So thanks again. A special thank you to Dr. Tyler Lark for his research and his effort to shine light on how ethanol and its production is exacerbating climate change. You can find more information in the description of this episode. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work Prairie Rivers Network does to protect water, heal land, and inspire change, you can donate and become a member at prairierivers.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.